Welcome to Beyond the Lead, where two young thinkers discuss current events and big ideas. This podcast provides in-depth analysis, along with free-flowing discussions about politics, philosophy, foreign policy, psychology, and many other fields you need to know about. Here's your hosts, Mike and Patrick. Welcome to Beyond the Lead. This is a weekly show where we get together and discuss big ideas and current events that are happening right now. I am one half of the show. My name is Mike, and you can find me tweeting at Mike Skinner with three N's. What's going on, Patrick? Hey, Mike. How are you, man? Uh, you know, just another day in paradise up here in the Pacific Northwest. It was kind of right, slow right. this week. I wasn't really too much going on, but I'm sure we can. There's always right, something what, to talk that's about. That's what you're saying is that like this week was actually a relatively speaking a slow news week in this brave new world we live in. Um, I I think that could be a good thing actually. That, that means that we haven't started World War Three or. It's a good thing. It actually makes us have to work harder though. I think to be like, hmm, what should we cover to this week? That's true. It's been kind of it's been kind of really easy to cover the big stories of Donald Trump Jr.'s emails to last week and two weeks ago. North Korea was in the news. Um, right. All those are kind of just like clickbaity type stories where everybody just wants to know the juice of what's going on. But this week there wasn't as much chaos, which like I said, that I consider that somewhat of a good thing, actually, that we didn't have as much chaos as there normally is with this administration. I agree. So for uh, this week's main story for discussion is actually net neutrality, which is a boring name for a really important issue. Uh, it's like, how should the internet be regulated? Is it a utility or is it something else? Is net neutrality, as Ted Cruz once remarked, Obamacare for the internet? Or is it something akin to simply wanting to classify the internet as a new telecommunications platform, a common carrier? It's sort of, I think of it as like a railroad for the 21st century. Um, and net neutrality is back in the news uh, this week, and especially as you guys are listening to this episode, because the White House has announced that they support rolling back net neutrality, which so I should explain. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, so when exactly are they going to be voting on it? Is that Thursday? They're going to they're gonna be voting on it in August. Like right now, they're, just, they're sort of shoring up the, the five-member commission. Okay, that's going what I to heard. Be, okay. It's going to essentially be three to two, like three, three, uh, um, three, three Republicans and two uh, Democrats. And then in August, they'll be voting on, like the FCC themselves will be voting on if they want to um, roll back support for net neutrality. And okay. I do think a, a simple definition is probably needed um, sure. for those who don't know what it is. So it's a principle that essentially means that there should be equal treatment for all Internet traffic. Um, and that actually is the current – it's currently classified, the Internet is, is currently classified as a common carrier, which was um, – which is through the Title II of the Telecommunications Act of 1934 – um, under Barack Obama's appointment head, Tom Wheeler, in 2015, he made that change. So he switched over. Um, the Internet is considered a common carrier now. Um, and for some reason, Republicans are pushing back at that, calling it big-time Internet, like government takeover of the Internet. Right. Um, but it essentially is leaving the Internet as it is right now. And people need to really understand that. Right now, the Internet is basically neutral. We have an open Internet right now. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting because when I was kind of getting into this, I found that net neutrality was a little more complicated than than they make it seem. I, I guess kind of it's 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 one of those you actually kind of have to get into the details to really understand what's going on. And I liked how you said that 
they're really uh, it's kind of keeping the same because that's kind of one of the arguments that I had found from people on the right were saying that one of the reasons they didn't want to um, invoke these regulations was because the internet was fine before 2015. So why should we change it? And um, so I found that uh, kind of interesting. And w one of the main reasons that they were saying um, and this this one article in the Daily Wire by Aaron Bandler, he had said that it's crony capitalism in favor of web giants like Facebook and Google. That's why they support net neutrality since it targets their competitors. And so, so that's kind so, of an interesting. I mean, you could push back and say that it's the opposite. You could say that uh, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, more regional and local internet service providers, they themselves also own big-time cable companies, and mm -hmm. they want rules that favor their interest. Um, I, I always say, like, I don't think capitalists actually like capitalism. I think they don't actually like competition once they get into power. And it's not like, it's actually not, I don't think, discussed that much because we're so much into our own liberal versus conservative corners. And it's like capitalists in general always fight for their competitive advantage. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's true. Um, one of the arguments I found kind of interesting, it was uh, it was uh, it was conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. He said the SEC also has the power to prevent ISPs from charging websites at rates they deem to be unfair and ends paid priority. He said that this is bad economics because Netflix, for example, consumes a huge amount of peak traffic bandwidth that costs Internet service providers money, obviously. Then he was saying porn or pornography sites consume a huge amount of bandwidth that costs ISPs money as well. So we're an ISP to push uPorn to pay fees for its higher bandwidth. Consumers of the ISP who did not use uPorn would be the beneficiaries. They would be subsidizing uPorn, obviously. And uh, he pointed that elect oh, what was it Alexandra Petrie of the Washington Post said, to use one of those dreaded analogies, if you're constantly driving huge trucks full of big deliveries of pornography along a road, why shouldn't you have to pay more for the road's upkeep? So I, I just kind of present that to you. If if they are, if if you know there are certain websites, obviously Pornhub's ranked what like 18th in, in the world of most trafficked right. sites. It's like why shouldn't they have to pay a little bit more when in every other area of commerce in America we ha we have to pay a little bit more? I'm not I, I'm not you know completely sold on that argument. It's just it, that's just one of that I, so it kinda, I it kinda, no I understand. It kind of sounds like it's like the the toll booth kind of argument. It's like they want people who use the highways more to pay more right um and it's like in principle i actually tend to support taxes and fees like that in general um i think the internet should be regulated like a um a common carrier because it's so important to the 21st century sure. and that's where i get that's where i get my sort of sort of progressive um that's where my sort of progressivism comes in because I don't believe that rights are stagnant and I believe that the Constitution itself is a living document and I believe that what is considered a right in 2017 is invariably going to be different than what was considered a right 100 years ago. Sure. And As 100 I, years ago, what was it was different from the previous centuries, obviously. So I can Right, and it's that. just... I, it, the, the Internet is, as of right now, is the most democratic... Uh, thing we have and mm -hmm. um also right now if you go which, which i actually do i i pay subscription fees to access sites that have a paywall right and like so we already can do that i just mm -hmm. i just imagine that and again it's not it's not guaranteed but i imagine that 
the likes of Comcast, Verizon, and AT and T, if I think they want the internet to look like cable TV, mm-hmm. that. Um, and yeah, of course. So they're going to argue it as they're going to say that they have consumers' interest on their mind. Like, okay, so if you're a working class family and you can't afford sixty-five bucks a month for internet, well, we'll give you part of the internet for twenty bucks. Mm-hmm. So it's cheaper. So you get some parts of the internet, but it's like it's so arbitrary. Yeah, it and seems I, I don't just like, like that either because that's just kind of that's getting into how does the government or then how who decides what part of the internet you get? Then you get into censorship, and I, I don't like that at all. Right. So it, it just seems very arbitrary, and they're just trying to collect rents, which sure. is also kind of anti-competitive. And uh, right. the the Economist, which is kind of seen as like the uber sort of neoliberal publication, they support competition though. So they're they support net neutrality. So I think a lot of times what's going on is like I, I heard Rush Limbaugh the other day talk about net neutrality and it's like I think one of two things are going on. One, this sounds conspiratorial, but like one, he's paid <laughs> or he, he's worried about his advertisers and he's because he I literally mean, is. When you look at what advertisers have been doing at, at like Fox News per se or for example, right. you know, well, that's that's a reasonable. I think that's reasonable he's just, to be afraid of that. He's just re- he's reading copy from someone from Verizon or someone like it sounds just like what these big telecom companies want you to think or two they seriously do believe what Ted Cruz says like this is going to be the Obamacare of the internet like they're just really really either sort of right. in in bed with money or just really really ignorant see I and, got that impression a little bit that they had thought it was kind of the Obamacare of the internet because they were saying that uh, in that article I was referencing, he said that the instances of ISP slowing down or blocking data to favor certain sites over others are few and far between. And cell phone networks, which are not subject to net neutrality uh, regulations, they don't engage in such anti-competitive behavior. And they're saying kind of this is because the free market makes it so that consumers wouldn't want those ISPs; they could just dump them in favors of others. So I, I kind of got in that. They just don't want the government in at all because they're one there wasn't really a problem so why should they have to come in and and put their hands on it when they don't need to right and like i think that's wrong i think there's been examples actually of of at&t for example of these isps blocking certain certain um websites and there's an eco- an article by the economist that brings up that brings up some of these examples they said that um in 2007 through 2009, AT&T asked Apple to block Skype on its phones. Mm-hmm. And then they said that AT&T, Sprint, and Verizon blocked Google Wallet on their networks in favor of a rival service called ISIS in 2011 <laughs> through 20, what a terrible 2013. Name. <laughs> There's also a band called ISIS that what, was what like... A, yeah, that's true. <laughs> there is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Say, what a terrible name for an app. Yeah, <laughs> nowadays. Oh, yeah. That's just bad branding now. Right. Uh, and then also, while in 2012, AT&T said that it would block Apple's video calling service, FaceTime, if customers using it did not subscribe to a more expensive data plan. Hmm. Um, so there are at least a couple of examples of these these right. ISPs doing exactly what those who are against net neutrality say that they've not done. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. There's one other quote that I, I'd wanted to mention to you is from uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald, who's actually obviously more progressive than he is 
conservative by any any standard. Right. He's, um, he said that the NSA already tampers with U.S.-made routers for spying purposes. If net neutrality went into effect, then the government would have to monitor telecoms and cable companies' broadband connections. And then uh, in this article also, they were saying, uh, writing in Forbes magazine, it was entrepreneur. His name was Joshua Stimey or Steamy. I forgive me if that's wrong. He said, don't be surprised if that means the government needs to be able to install its own hardware and software at critical points to monitor internet traffic. Once installed, can we trust this government or any government to use that access in a benign fashion? I thought that was a fair point. I mean, it might be a fair point, but it these phone companies already keep your metadata and even your data for the last six months. And, right, um, which is what Greenwald hates, obviously. Right. That's not I, I what mean, he became famous for. This doesn't really give... I mean, his his point is fair, and it it is something that people should consider, but I think that is a that would be like a different sort of route to sort of regulate privacy, you know, privacy issues that our country hasn't has not dealt with at all yet. Right. Um, but, I mean, this doesn't give any ownership over to, like, the government. It's simply saying... Um, hey, the internet, you are the 21st century version of a railroad and you can't charge, you know, different sort of companies who have their own rail cars on their tracks because it's sort of like, uh, because the government is allowed to regulate commerce and right. uh, it's a common carrier for the 21st century. Sure. Um, it just seems like a lot of scare tactics on the other side. I think that's a fair analogy. Yeah, it definitely seems that they they have this the slippery slope. I you know the sorry the slippery slope idea. That's what they think is going to happen if the government gets in a little bit, and that means that they're going to get in more and more and more, and then eventually going to turn into China, where they pick who who gets censored and who doesn't based but on I mean, based on the, arbitrary regulations or whatnot. This is the government though saying you can't discriminate any of your data on your websites like it's very democratic it's very bottom up mm-hmm. of course it does also help it does help google facebook netflix it right. does help these other large companies out but mm-hmm. the opposite would help comcast verizon at&t right um, see is and, it because the opposite also though helps the smaller businesses because i was reading that a lot of the smaller isps are getting screwed by by this because they they can't even Get, come close to competing with Netflix or whatnot, which I think, though, in, in, uh, from a capitalist standpoint, if they were truly better, they would be able to compete with them. But I mean, that's that argument has its limitations, obviously. But so there's an article by Devin Coldway from TechCrunch.com, and he okay. he goes through he goes through all these arguments against net neutrality and why they're all wrong. And there is one about how. Net neutrality stifles small businesses with reporting and restrictions. Yeah. And Wait, is that the article where he presents it, where it said like they had said myth and then fact, and then he adds on an extra, an, an extra um, additional. It's not. It's not exactly organized like that. Okay, um, just, but, well, but I have read a couple. I, I, I'd read I've one read a in, couple on that Ted uh, TechCrunch website that I think was was kind of close to that, where they had mentioned something like that. Right. Oh, anyways, go on. Uh, he, he his big takeaway is that like potentially that could happen. But there are already allowances for this. Um, right. His, um, so he, he quotes actually a CEO of Sonic, which is a medium-sized ISP in San Francisco. And he says that the rules aren't a problem for them. Um, it's only a problem if you like have literally three employees, 500 subscribers. Um, where the, the cost would be kind of – the cost would be increasing. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what you get for any kind of standards, like standardization – 
um, any kind of licenses. And those are really, really complicated issues that a lot of people on the right, especially like libertarian think tanks, talk about all the time that, look, it costs so much paperwork to like paint, to cut someone's hair, for example, and that they want to get rid of that red tape so that more and more people can become barbers. Right. Um, Which um, people on the right want, you know, less red tape in any different situation. So you, so I could see them supporting that. Right. <laughs> sure. So yeah, it, right. it is a complicated issue, but I don't think it's as complicated as people are making it out to be. Mm -hmm. um, this is the internet trying to, or excuse me, this is the government trying to um, protect the internet as it is right now. And I think most people think the internet right now is awesome. All right. Well, I really don't have much um, much else to say against that. I just kind of wanted to to share a little of the points that I had found uh, f to kind of explain why some people on the right or in this administration would want to to abandon those those regulations. But I'm not not necessarily convinced by all of them. So right, I can leave it. Yeah, at and that. and I'll reference this uh, this article from TechCrunch by Devin Coldway called "These Are the Arguments Against Net Neutrality and Why They're Wrong." And I'll. I'll add that to our show notes because it's, it's, it's the best one I've read. And I've tried to read all over the spectrum to try to get the best arguments against it. And I'm pretty much convinced that there's no good arguments against net neutrality as all we right. speak. All right. Well, that's, that, that's fair enough. So since this was a little bit of a slower news episode or not episode, news week or however we want to put it, let's get into addressing something that we had talked about in the first episode, which is North Korea. So in the most important news of the week, North Korea cancels their annual beer fest. <laughs> no, seriously, this is true. This actually did happen. It was, okay. <laughs> it was an article in CNN yeah. money. But anyway, so so we wanted to kind of just get into uh, readdressing some of, the, some of the things we had said in that North Korea episode, get into what's what's going on right now since the test and just just kind of address what's basically what's been happening. The first thing I'd want to talk about was their famine. So this article, okay. it's called a uh, North Korea faces famine as Kim Jong-un builds nuclear missiles to attack the U.S. And that is a perfect headline because I think that really uh, just encapsulates what's what's happening. They're having a famine while he's building nuclear missiles. It's ridiculous. And in this article, right. they say, while North Korea's leadership celebrates its successful testing of a missile that it claims can strike the United States with a nuclear warhead, its citizens are facing the prospect of its worst drought in 16 years, which could lead to even greater food shortages in the isolated country. A report from the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization released last week said that rainfall between the critical period of April to June was lower than the same period in 2001 when cereal production reached an unprecedented low. So basically, their, their population is getting screwed and he's just worried about trying to attack us. And that, right. that, that is crazy to me. And I think this adds evidence to what we were talking about in the in our first episode about how big of a threat North Korea is or not. They're not a very large threat to us, in my opinion. And this is one example as to why. Like it's because they're spending so much resources on on this and as opposed to their actual population. There's, just, or? there's, there's no reason that we should think that they actually want to attack us. Like they're do, they're they're building up defenses for um, deterrence reasons mm -hmm. and strong, like strong states that do the same thing that North Korea do, they are a threat to the world, to the region at Lino for sure. Mm -hmm. And to locally, definitely. Um, and they're still a threat locally. I think, um, they always get into smaller skirmishes with South Korean vessels. People do die 
um, they kidnapped people. They just kidnapped an American citizen, and, you know, right. we got him back on our shores, and he died. Like, stuff right. like that happens, but they're not a strong, stable country that's going to attack anyone, in yeah. my opinion, and that's an example of why. Like, they also had a famine in the 1990s mm-hmm. that might have killed a million people. Like, this is not Ooh. a very powerful state. Sure. Right. Yeah, that's fair. And that's something I, I think I'd mentioned in the previous episode that when I was watching th- this documentary on North Korea, they're saying that if we can just figure out how to get more information into them, that is going to help add to kind of, I don't know if this is a good way of saying it, but add to the instability of the population, which helps add, you know, deflectors or I'm sorry, defectors and whatnot to the regime, which if you weaken the entire population, how do you get strength or I, don't know. I mean, I I always disagree with stuff like that. There's a lot of literature about sanctions and if they work or not. And because mm-hmm. um, uh, like the the theory is that hey, if we if we implement sanctions on a country, that the population will blame their own government instead of blaming instead of blaming um, like like they'll, they'll blame their own government for their actions. Like you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have built nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't have uh, kidnapped so and so. But they almost never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it just ends up hurting the population, which again, if that's, if that's your tactic, well, then that's your tactic. But well, it's all saying like, if you can add to the instability of, of the population, that kind of like, if you don't have a strong backing from your country, are you really as strong of a threat as, you know, kind of you were saying, and that's, it's interesting though, I kind of wanted to tie in something else I had found from Newsweek. It was our, uh, uh, the chairman of the U S joint chiefs of staff is saying that Russia, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Sorry, Russia, not North Korea, is the greatest threat to the U.S. So I think when we had first talked, I had mentioned kind of uh, the opposite thing, and I just obviously read that wrong. So I think that with what you're saying kind of gives evidence that actually North Korea isn't as much of a threat as the media is making it out to seem. So what do you think? I mean, I think this is the same, the very similar kind of rhetoric that we heard with the the Bush administration in 01 and 02 regarding Iraq and mm-hmm. uh I am very much opposed to going to war with North Korea for a lot of the reasons that we talked about in the first episode um it will spill over into chaos and anarchy um millions of people will die um there's just no reason to think that they actually are going to attack the United States it seems like warmongering for me and I don't use that word lightly mm-hmm. um there's no credible reason to actually think they're going to attack the United States mm-hmm. Um, Mike, go ahead. No, I, I was just I was just agreeing with you because I, I don't really see. It seems like he's he's kind of just you know trying try to put his he's, he's trying to put his balls on the table, I guess. But he's not. I don't know if he's actually going to do it or not. But I, I don't know. I, I I don't know if he's as as predictable as as you're making it seem, or I I just I mean, don't know. I I made the argument that North Korea are rational actors in the international relations sense of that. They're not suicidal. They're not suicidal. Um, they're, do, they're building up defense systems for deterrence reasons because they don't want to become the next Iraq, the next Libya. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, we can't get into another land war in Asia. We've done this before. <laughs> we're still in one in Afghanistan, you right. know, quietly. We, we, we were in one in Vietnam. We were in one in the Korea War. Um, and we don't want to cause literally the greatest humanitarian crisis right. in, that, in history. <laughs> right. right. Uh, and just to, uh, to double down on this little sec- uh, section here, Mike Pompeo, the director of the CIA, he actually told an audience at the Aspen Security Forum that they are looking at options that would, and here's a quote now, separate the capacity 
um, mm-hmm. to build and deliver nuclear weapons from someone who might well have intent. And then it was a clear reference to, to Kim Jong-un, the country, uh, uh, North Korea's leader. But a couple of days later, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, said, our goal is not regime change, nor do we desire to threaten the North Korean people or destabilize the Asia-Pacific the Asia region. Mm-hmm. So we are once again seeing mixed messages seeing mixed from the messages. Trump administration. Yeah, for sure. Because in this article that I, that I have, uh, it was actually, it was the U.S., uh, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was speaking at the Aspen Security Forum in, um, in Colorado. He, he listed Russia's military modernization program, its nuclear and cyber capabilities, and its actions in Georgia, Crimea, and eastern Ukraine as evidence of the security threat posed by the country. So he wasn't even addressing North Korea as, as much at all. He's saying they are the real threat not North Korea. So that kind of falls in line with Tillerson, but not as much with uh, the first one you had mentioned. I, I don't remember who you said it was. Oh, uh, Mike Pompeo. Oh, yeah. He's the head the of the C- CIA. The CIA director, right. Yeah, so. I think I think Russia is a bigger national security um, challenge than North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now the only existential threat that we face is climate change, followed by actually like economic inequality and how our country is getting more and more polarized. Like I, we are so powerful and so rich that we are like that we can commit death by suicide, but not, not death by death by homicide. In my opinion, mm-hmm. like this is going to be an internal uh, implosion, if anything. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. We definitely have more, more problems going on inside than we do outside. And that's, that's a nice little segue into what we wanted to share as our joint segment. If we want to get into that. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Sure. So this is now our segment called beyond the lead where we get off the news stories of the week and we talk about big ideas that have big consequences. And there was an essay written in the Atlantic magazine by Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist from the New York university and Greg Lukianoff, who is the founder of, fire organization which is a free speech organization and it's called why it's a bad idea to tell students words are violence yes and this was one of the one of the better articles i've read in in the atlantic as far as kind of going through and explaining uh, some some important ideas that i've actually been been hearing recently not necessarily where uh, the college that, that I go to, because it's smaller and there's really no problems here. But as far as on, on a national scale, uh, w- one of the interesting things that I, I liked was it they started off kind of getting into the psychology of stress. And that's interesting for me because I'm doing an abnormal psychology class right now. And literally the last week was the chapter on stress and anxiety. And it was all about the biological factors and and um, all the different perspectives that go into explaining stress. And I found it interesting. They were talking in the article. It says this good kind of stress isn't just not harmful. It also sometimes makes an individual stronger and more resilient. The next time that person faces a similar situation, she'll experience a milder stress response because it's no longer novel and because her coping repertoire has grown. And this is obviously talking about when someone like Miley Yiannopoulos comes in and says something uh, controversial, they were saying that if that causes stress to someone and stress is linked to physical harm, then that means that that uh, controversial words are causing the physical harm. And so I found it interesting that they were saying that there is actually good kind of stress that actually helps you grow. And I thought that was a good, good, good thing to point out. Right. And they highlight too, they actually hyperlink a bunch of, a bunch of uh, studies that show that very fact Yeah, that low levels of stress actually are positive for your brain and positive for your psyche and your psychology in general. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So they actually penned this essay because it was a response to a psychologist named Lisa Feldman Barrett who wrote an essay for the New York Times and it was titled When is Speech Violence? And uh, she goes over that um, basically long-term acute stress can cause physical damage but as you said they point out that uh, there has to be a more sophisticated um, understanding of what is acute stress and what is just some like what is you feel upset today because you heard some words you didn't like right I liked in the article they pointed there is a spectrum like you know well if you had some tough homework that causes you stress then that causes you physical harm does that mean that the stress or that the 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 hard homework is violence no of course not so we definitely have to have to pin down exactly what you mean like what is actually acute stressors and what is not I think some of their arguments, like the one that you just pointed out, are kind of straw men, though. Um, I'm sure there might be a couple of people who argue that, like, you know, I can't handle homework because it stresses me out. Therefore, therefore, I can't do it because it's, 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 it's whatever. It, it's, it's actually physically harming me. But, like, the, the truth is this whole conversation about speech on campus, um, I've never heard anyone really mention that homework is what they're talking about. They sure. are talking about what they perceive as hate speech, and that is different than homework. And I thought some of their arguments, the more I read it, like I read it, th- uh, I think I read it three times, the whole essay. Wow. Like the more I was, re- the more I was reading it, I was like, man, I, I kind of think they're 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 engaging in some straw men for sure. Um, overall, I think their smartest ideas are, which they wrote about in their 2015 article called "The Coddling of the American Mind," mm-hmm. um, that. What they're seeing is, is young students are using emotional reasoning, catastrophizing, and dichotomous thinking, which those are associated with anxiety, depression, and difficulty coping. And uh, so I think those three things actually as a population-wide problem is what we all need to be tackling, those of us who care about the truth and who care about getting ideas spread. Um, emotional reasoning cannot be a good defensive argument for why why something is right or wrong right Um, right of course not like i remember reading something kind of recently they were saying though but not just because it's emotional reason doesn't mean there isn't any merit to the argument right right so so, yes yeah i totally agree though that's one of uh that's one of actually jonathan height's main points in his book the righteous mind is that a lot of people say that they're all about the logical reasoning, but actually they're engaging in emotional reasoning, and that isn't the best way to argue, like like, like you had just said. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to, to point to was uh, Feldman Barrett, the one who had actually wrote uh, the essay you were talking about. She was saying that what's bad for your nervous system, in contrast, are long stretches of simmering stress. So if you spend a lot of time in a harsh environment worrying about your safety, that's the kind of stress that brings on illness and remodels your brain. So I think if, if wanted to get into what actually causes the stress i think it is if, if you are living in an environment or they were saying if you think you're living in an environment uh, also triggers that and that's that's absolutely true because obviously what our perspectives are shape how we are seeing the world you know um so i think it's interesting to get into uh what is it about that environment that is actually, quote, not safe? And is it different from what they're going to experience after they graduate? Because I would argue, because I've lived in both the non, uh, the college environment and the, the work environment now since I took a break after, after uh, spending a few years in college. And uh, college is definitely way easier and a lot safer. Right. So. 
So I, I don't know what you if you had anything to say about that. Well, I think in general, so a lot of the debate is if college students basically what's called deplatform a speaker from from being so a speaker is invited to their college like so Milo Milo Yiannopoulos was invited to speak at UC Berkeley. Right. There's a bunch of protests. There are riots outside, um, and basically the protesters tried to make it be so that he could not speak. Mm-hmm. And the argument is deplatforming itself is like anti-speech. And I'm saying though, like, what do people who agree with that do they want law? Like, do they want more tougher laws to be implemented? Do they want campuses to to um, because I'm saying in some ways, like, except for the rioting, like, like don't riot for sure. But right, of like, course. if you're saying I don't want this, if you're saying I don't want this person at my campus, I think you're allowed, you should be allowed to say that. Um, and um, you don't have to have everyone on campus just because they, um, that they're invited there by another group. Like, I think it's part of the, I think it's part of the back and forth is you should allow protest outside the arena of course. Um, and you sh- like you shouldn't stop them from protesting is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like there has to be protest. That's part of the part of the first amendment. I uh, what was it? Uh Shapiro or someone recently was talking about how they they actually enjoy the protest cuz the vast majority of the protesters that that will act- or not necessarily protesters uh sorry, that protest them when they actually, when he goes and talks to them, a lot of them will actually sit and talk to them and he says those are actually the best conversations. He he wants the people that disagree with him to come to the front and actually talk to him and he says that he wants those people to come that that disagree and also i, I kind of wanted to point out that i think um you know if you're a private college though you can definitely do whatever the hell you want so if you want to not if, if there is a speaker that you don't want or something i, I think that when you're a uh, private college it is different but when you're a public college like uh, you know uc berkeley not a lot of these these are you can't it was like you're saying you can't just pick who is coming, who is not. But at the same time, you have to allow protesters. So I agree, if there's ever tr- going to be a law saying that you can't have protesters at your event, I- I'm going to protest that as much as I would protest uh, right. people trying yeah, to I think, riot. I think, that's import- I think that's important, too, because some people do just have like a sort of reflexive um, anti-protest attitude about things. Mm-hmm. And I think that also has to be part of the American like part of our democracy here is that people are allowed to protest and have counter speech. Now I know Haidt right. and Lukianov are essentially saying the best antidote to speech you don't like is more speech. And I mm-hmm. totally agree with that. I think most Americans would agree that that free speech should be protected. Um and I do think it's ironic that UC Berkeley was the home of the free speech movement. I and, know, right? <laughs> uh, well it's important too because they were literally there was a um there was like a uh, a student group that was that was that was petitioning on Bancroft Avenue in front of UC Berkeley on October first, nineteen sixty four, and um, the school's administrators were the ones who were trying to like get that get that get that table that student group removed from the street, and the right. students said, "We don't want administrators getting in our business. We want to we want this to be allowed. We mm-hmm. want to have our own." our own um power here in the university so it's kind of strange that there are at least a small minority of students who are asking for they're asking for administrators and bureaucrats to get more involved on campus instead of less involved because that was what the free speech movement was about was to get these administrators off their back i totally agree and i think the 
the point comes is when there actually is violence and rioting. So if someone's actually just going up, like there's this one, this girl had a make Bitcoin great again. It didn't even say America, but someone thought she had a Trump hat on and just went up and pepper sprayed her. Obviously, there should be consequences for that. I don't I don't even think that's a question. But yeah, I totally agree. We can't draw the line at protesters, though, because I would argue some of the greatest movements, some of the best things that have happened are because of dissent and are because of protesters and actually challenging the status quo. Right. Um, right. There's only there's one more point that I want to hit on about this this article real fast. And so they ask they ask if Milo Yiannopoulos speaks on the University of California, Berkeley campus. Is that an act of violence? Now, so I found a video of Milo at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and said so it's a video. You can find it online. So about 43 minutes into his talk, he posts a photo of a person who identifies as transgender who actually is a student at that at that University of Wisconsin, Ooh, Milwaukee. And, that's wrong. <laughs> uh, I think that's wrong. Uh, it's borderline psychotic. Uh, now, is it violence? Um, again, like that's like if they're using the like, that's why I think they have a lot on their they these these writers of this article to focus on so much on violence sort of being the only problem. Well, their argument is actually kind of easy to make then, but you can understand why someone like Milo has a bunch of pushback because he says things that are incendiary and sure. he is a troll. Yep. Um, and I think to call out a student, uh, to call out a student for having. Uh, for identifying as transgender is not like something I support. There's no um, way. I don't think anybody can actually support that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you bring that up, actually, because we definitely there is a distinction to make between is violence even the only problem? Because if he if he did that, I mean, no, I, I can't back that up at all. There's there's no way. But I liked how you said, is that violence? No, it's not violence. But it, there's still other there's other issues, though, as well. So. Well, so, no, it's possibly an act of it's possibly an act of intimidation and harassment. Yeah. I mean, he didn't talk about this student. He didn't talk about this student for very long, but that student was actually in the crowd, and uh, they 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 were like completely shocked that that happened, and they did feel unsafe afterwards. Sure. And I feel like that person has the right to feel kind of scared because like, why did you just bring me up? Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm, I'm just I'm like, it's not right. Uh, again, I wouldn't. I don't want I don't want him to be banned for that still. I want people to understand what he is doing though and that to sort of understand that this pushback isn't all it's not all crazy kids who just have any, who are sure. having emotional tantrums. This is part of the fight of the 21st version, the 21st century version of civil rights. Um of course, I'm a free speech absolutist, but the first amendment doesn't allow you to um intimidate or to um call for direct violence i don't think he called for direct violence but i say it's just right. it's, it's a little more complicated um than i'm pretty sure the violence. first the first amendment also uh, also protects against harassment too which right i think which, that's which, true right which i think is right yeah yeah no absolutely like I, say, I, I i i probably wouldn't even think that's harassment i think it'd be harassment if he did it like 20 days in a row <laughs> like if he kept yeah. doing the, if I he think, kept calling out this same see, student that'd i don't be harassment. even know i don't even know like just calling even just calling a student out is just so so beyond the pale i i, I can't even defend even that at all and i well, tend to like milo not i don't like milo for what he, i think he's an important f 
figure and that he is challenging a lot and he is causing and he is a troll there's there's no denying he he does say incendiary things to get to get reactions but i i can't defend uh, actually calling a student out and putting them on blast like that that's that's just wrong to me i i don't think it's violence but well harassment i think it could be called harassment for sure no fair enough and he's i think he he's hypocritical because he always he likes to say that the left is mean and that he's not mean uh, he's right. very mean. And then he does that. Yeah, no, he's I, to- mean. I totally agree. I totally and again, agree with I, that. If, if he just said, yeah, I'm mean, I'd be fine with it. Or not fine with it, but you know what I'm trying to say. Sure. He, he wouldn't be being a hypocrite, but he's definitely mean. So that, that's just, that's it, it's delusional if he thinks he's not mean. Yeah, no, yeah, no, that's fair. I think the last point I wanted to say was actually in that article, they talked about Van Jones. And uh, there was a right. great quote he had said. He said, I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. This is the gym. And so they're kind of saying, you know, the conflation of words with violence it isn't a new or progressive idea invented on college campus in the last two years. It's an ancient and regressive idea, and it needs to be unpopular because this is how we strengthen ourselves. But at the same time, I I can definitely understand wh- where the line of harassment and actual violence comes into play. So, so I mean, agreed. That's about it. I, I don't really have too much else that I wanted to add. I think this is an important topic, but in a way, I also think it's a over talked about topic i mean that's kind of kind of bad to say since we just spent some time on it but i i don't know i i I don't know if it's as i guess as much of a of a problem as people on social media make it out to seem just based on my own experiences with college i kind of wanted to ask you that to end this yeah i agree like i said before that i think it was on i think it was on one of our our podcast episodes but if not if not then i'll say it not for the first time but um I hardly have ever experienced any sort of social justice warrior type outrage on my campus that I go to school at. And I know there are there are lots of examples of outrage going on. And sometimes there are students demanding trigger warnings on like classic literature. And there's definitely there's definitely some sort of authoritarian tendencies going on with with certain student movements. But I think the bigger problem that I see and that I hear other professors talk about on campus is um, is public funding being slashed because we have state legislators ran by Republicans, uh, uh, thirty-five of them to be exact, and they're 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 endlessly cutting higher education budgets. And then you have self-censorship going on with professors themselves. Right. Then you have then you have tenure issues. I just think there's a lot of issues on campus to talk about. Um, you have student debt problems. Um, mm-hmm. And you have, you do have issues of we are graduating students with undergrad degrees who are not qualified. Uh, there's a lot more stuff to talk about besides um, every now and then a couple of students getting outraged about some words. Um, that's my That's totally my fair. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, yeah, I don't think there much else needs to be said. If I want to switch to uh, a segment I like to do every week is going to be where I bring in an insight from a professor, a speaker, musician, actor, it could be anybody. Just like I, I jokingly said that it, it was going to be a Jordan Peterson insight every week just because he has so many of them. But this week actually comes from Jonathan Haidt, who is with our co-author in the, the, the paper we were just mentioning. And this is taken from his book called The Righteous Mind. And in the book's ta- uh, the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. He says that, quote, we should not expect individuals to produce good, open-minded, truth-seeking 
uh, truth-seeking reasoning, particularly when self-interest or reputational concerns are in play. But if you put individuals together in the right way, such that some individuals can use their reasoning powers to disconfirm the claims of others, and all individuals feel some common bond or shared fate that allows them to interact civilly, you can create a group that ends up producing good reasoning as an emergent property of the social system. This is why it's so important to have intellectual and ideological diversity within any group or institution whose goal is to find truth, such as an intelligence agency or a community of scientists, or to produce good public policy, such as legislature or advisory board. I just think that that is just so important to remember. We need to have diversity within any group in order to bring out the best, and that and that uh, we need to be able to bring the ideas that challenge us the most. Because I, I would like I would argue some of my, especially when it comes to religion, I would have never questioned some of the things that I would have if it wasn't for the extreme other examples, or it doesn't even have to be extreme, but just the the other counter opinions that I decided to actually look look into and think more deeply about. So I, I just think that's a that's an important thing to think about. I agree. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's a really good thinker and a really good writer, and. Yeah, I like him a lot. Yeah, cool. All right, so I actually wanted to get into one of my personal segments here, and um, it's it's actually about why did Hillary Clinton lose and what should the Democrats do to win in 2018 and in 2020, and what is their message, basically. And I got inspired to to talk about this this last week because there was a lot of actually interesting pieces written recently by a liberal publication called the new republic and i actually really like the new republic they publish pretty centrist thinkers but also pretty far left thinkers and sometimes even conservative thinkers like jerry Cohn, who's a he's a um he's not conservative i would say but he's an evolutionary biologist and he actually writes a lot about free speech issues so they have a pretty wide platform of of, of voices that they allow on their website but there was a couple of um there's two or three pieces there this week all about like what should the democrats do why did hillary clinton lose um I kind of wanted just to get into that a tiny bit. So there's a book called Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign by Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes. And the big takeaway from reading a bunch of excerpts and many reviews of that book sounds like Hillary was never the, that Hillary was never able to define herself and she could never catch up to what Bernie was saying to her left and what Trump was saying to her right. So you essentially have someone who's competent versus which is Hillary Clinton, right? She's very, she definitely was competent versus someone who said, I'm going to solve all your problems and make this country great again. And so their takeaway in that book from, from all of my reading of all these excerpts is just that like no one on her campaign believed in her. They did not understand, like she did not articulate to them even why she is, like why was she running? What is her vision? What is her message? And she had a lot of strong policy actually positions on her website, but no one's reading her website. Um <laughs> They're, they're just not reading her website. So I was trying to get into what were the real reason that Hillary Clinton lost, and I I divided these into a couple of different different categories. So you have the establishment Democrats, and they think that Clinton lost because a not-so-small percentage of our population are actual so-called deplorables who are racist, sexist, and retrograde. And I would say these people would be neoliberals economically, and they're fairly liberal when it comes to identity politics and inclusive capitalism. Um and then you have sort of to their left, you have progressives um, such as the Young Turks crowd on YouTube, such as other podcasts called um, such as the Majority Report, 
um, and sort of more more of the activisty part of the left. And you can divide that group, the progressives, into two small groups. Um, basically, you have some progressives who think that the Democrats should go to the left on economics. So I'll just call them economic progressives. And then you have some progressives who think that the Democrats should go all in. They should just be cultural progressives, economic progressives, and they should sort of um, double down on identity politics. Um, and I think my position here is I think that the Democrats should carve out more of an economic populist message, but when it comes to identity and cultural issues, I think they should stay pretty straight down the middle. Um, and it's actually kind of hard to do because I was looking up the fact that Hillary Clinton lost um, white women without a college degree by like 28%, but she also um, didn't win the black um, the black American vote as high as as high as one would expect. Um, so, how do you walk that line where you where you are trying to shore up uh, shore up um, uh, minority groups, but you're also trying to sort of get more votes of people who are white working class women in particular. Um, but I think overall, Hillary Clinton lost because she lost. She's a bad politician. Um, she had a very unpopular image since actually for 20 years, since the 90s, the, the Clinton administration has been very unpopular with everyday Americans. Um, but I think that if you look at public polling, for example, there's a Gallup poll from late 2016, and the takeaway was like 25% of Americans are liberal. So that's evidence that, that Americans are actually more um, conservative. But that's just self-identifying. That very same poll had Americans ask questions about very specific issues. And Americans are actually more liberal when it comes to environmental issues, when it comes to raising the minimum wage, when it comes to health care. Actually, when it comes to taxing the wealthy, when it comes to taxing even the middle class, um, most Americans actually support issues that the Democrats, um, in my opinion, get correct. So I think the Democrats need to just run stronger candidates um, that um, base their platforms on economic populism while not being super super um, engaged regarding identity politics and I think they already have the Americans on their side when it comes to issues so I think the problem 2016 was Hillary Clinton and in 2018 um, they should be fine as long as they um, run some more compelling candidates who aren't engaged in identity politics so what do you think w would you rather Cory Booker John Ossoff or or let's go Bernie. If if you had to pick who would be the strongest candidate to run? I think Bernie Sanders. He's the most popular politician in the country, um, overwhelmingly right. so in polls. And um, I don't think you can run someone like um, Cory Booker right now. Um, I don't think so I either. Just, and it's, it's interesting to point out, we're talking about the identity politics, but I think it's worth pointing out that I think uh, following Trump what will be a white male like in in an um, an older more let's I don't know how to put it established white male so I think that's kind of I don't think with with how um, excited the Trump base is that that that, that they would allow any, anything else but a lot of people were kind of talking about someone like Elizabeth Warren could come in and and, and actually steal away the Bernie because of his age and other certain things, right. which I don't know how much age actually matters. It, it matters. I mean, you figure he'll be, what, like 79 when he's campaigning, and campaigning does a lot to young people. I can't imagine 
being damn near 80 years old and uh, campaigning. But so you, you do think he would be the strongest? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just going by up by opinion polls, basically. Yeah. Um, I think Elizabeth Warren could be like a vice presidential candidate. Yeah. Um, I just think... I think a lot of people just, were surprised she wasn't... A lot, sorry, I didn't interrupt, but the last no, year. Ahead. I think that uh, if they if uh, they would have... If she would have backed Bernie instead of Hillary, that would have maybe got the progressive base I mean, a little I, more excited, but... I always dreamed about... I think if Hillary would have chosen Bernie as her, as her running mate... I think uh, that would have been they, it overwhelmingly win the election yeah Just I agree. overwhelmingly so uh oh, i agree but, but hillary like genuinely is not that progressive on issues and she's not uh she's a neoliberal she's not she's not actually a liberal and that would be why she wouldn't want bernie sanders as her as her um as her running mate yeah because because they, they would have won yeah yeah, I think that's fair, and I think the Democrats ha- have a lot that they have to do, but even though I am more right-leaning, so I may not necessarily want all the Democrats in power, obviously, but I mean, as far as uh, the current administration seems so incompetent at passing anything that I think that the Democrats have a have a decent shot at getting in there at least for 2018, and unless there's some type of a turnaround for 2020, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to go blue next election season. That's just... I mean- Based uh, off I'm, right now, I'm, that's it's too soon to it's too soon to predict that. I think that 2018 they have history and structural politics to their advantage. Like the midterms almost always flip always to the flip, other party. Right. Yeah, um, 2020 is too far away. I mean, uh, yeah, it's just too far away to even talk about really. Sure. Yeah. Well. All right. Well, um, is there anything else you wanted to say about that? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, the second segment I wanted to get into is a little bit sadder. So on July 20th, uh, sorry, July 20th, the world lost someone that actually started a fire in me that made me want to perform as a musician. So Chester Bennington, he's the lead singer of Linkin Park. He committed suicide on the birthday of late Soundgarden singer Chris Cornell. And there's some people saying, you know, did he plan to do that? And which obviously not really sure right now. It's unless he wrote it down or something, you'll never know. But Chris recently hung himself in what seems to be a trend in the music scene and has been forever. You always hear about lead singers and rock stars committing suicide. Well, Chester had even performed at his memorial. So that kind of adds to the whole. I mean, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but was he showing signs that he was going to do this? I, I think uh, hindsight really is just twenty twenty, and people are just trying to understand because actually it seemed everyone was taken by shock. So I don't really believe that anyone actually thought that there were signs. But I wanted to get into why this actually mattered to me. That's because I listened to Chester's words more than honestly some of my family members. And it's okay to miss your family members when they pass away, even if you see them once every, what, once a holiday. But yet uh, people wonder why other people get upset when famous people die if they didn't know them personally. And I used to try to think this way until recently a professor of mine, it was in an anthropology class, she had mentioned how she had uh, had Robin Williams movies on at her house all the time. So for decades, his movies were playing in the background. She said that his voice just rang through her house and her and her family, they were entertained by him for just so many years that he really became a part of the family. And so there actually was a significant loss when he was gone. And so if you spend a significant amount of your attention and even your emotions on someone's art, is it not okay to mourn when they're gone? I mean, growing up, Linkin Park really was the band that my friends and I would sing at the top of our lungs. One of our first bands, and I laugh about this, 
but we called it LP2, which meant nice. Lincoln, <laughs> we, it meant Lincoln Part Two, but we weren't going to tell anyone what it actually <laughs> meant. But for <laughs> for years, we would listen to those albums just over and over, and we just I remember watching their Live in Texas DVD, and that was like a highlight of my childhood because me and my friends would mimic everything they would do and hold little concerts for our family and just trying to be nice. Them. And so there's one thing, though, I wanted to say that is a little bit more darker. And this has to do with what was pointed out by a few musicians. Um, I don't want to name any specific ones. You, you listeners can go find them. But I wanted to make a note that I feel for Chester's children because mm. he, he really did leave behind six kids that now have to grow up without a father. And many people in the music industry were uh, calling him out about it or calling him out on it. I mean, obviously, they can't call him out. He's gone. But they were talking about him and Chris Cornell because they decided to take, quote, the easy way out. This is their words. Instead of facing their demons and pressing on to provide for their families. This is incredibly harsh. And I am not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to demonize them for this, but it is hard not to miss that point in that many musicians have dealt with extreme depression and found ways to overcome but it, it, it's just so hard when you don't know what they were facing you have no, no idea what they were actually dealing with in their head you don't know if it was even could just have been a biological thing which turns out to, ha to happen a lot of reasons so they have no control over that but it is right. a reality that when a father leaves behind children in this way it's another tragedy compounded upon the first so there's just a lot of there's a lot of complicated things going into it, but I just wanted to just kind of to re remember what Chester was to me, but still, I still understand and kind of, or try to understand the reality of the situation. Right. Yeah, that's very nice to hear. Um, I actually was pretty sad when I heard that he committed suicide. Um, I was a fan of their first album, Hybrid Theory, in high school, and uh, I wasn't a huge fan of them um, after that album. But I just get I get sad when when. I mean, depression is a very real disease, and I think it's okay to call it a disease. I mean, I try to sort of read what biologists say about depression, and they say it's bi they say it's biological. They say it's psychological. Uh, according to the World Health Organization, it might be like the number two um, disease in the world. Right. Um, depression and and about about killing yourself being easy. It's also an easy statement just to say. Like you just said some words. Sure. Um, uh, you kill yourself um and you have six children like obviously you're in some pain that i can't comprehend but i'm aware that my subjective solipsistic existence doesn't m mean anything like just because i can't comprehend killing myself doesn't mean that i know what that person was going through it's not just that they had a bad day you know like depression seems to be real right. a real biological disease um I hope I always hope that this allows us to talk more about mental health in our country. Um, I totally agree with yeah, that. Yeah, it's just overall a very sad, very sad thing to hear, man. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right. Well, the the thing that I wanted to recommend to you guys to wrap things up in our back pages is uh, the book called The Righteous Mind, which is what I had taken my quote from in my insight, and it's by Jonathan Haidt, who was the author or co-author of the Atlantic article. You guys just really have to read this book. This has been, uh, it's been recommended by people on the, the right, by people on the left. It's just a really great book and it really kind of opened my eyes to why people do believe in the things that they do. And not everyone is crazy. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the, best, the best thing to say about it is that people aren't as evil as you may think 
they, they are. And so you should go read that book and we'll provide a link in the show notes for it. I actually, I actually agree. I read that book a couple, I think it was, it actually might've been just this year, earlier in the, earlier in the, in the spring, like January or February, I think I read the righteous mind and, uh, it's been on my radar for years. Um, I've heard him talk about the book on Ted talks. I heard him talk about it on blogging heads, but until I finally sat down and, and read it, I didn't, I couldn't quite grasp, you know, all of his arguments. Um, it, it's about how people are divided by politics and religion, and it should give you, if you read it with an open mind, it should make you empathize with everyone. And I mean that literally. Um, uh, it, it's, you know, it's, a, it's about how different, different cultures and different groups of people, um, how they value different, um, how, they, how they organize their different value systems. And it's very complicated. Like he, he paints conservative mindsets and liberal mindsets in a way that is, is just it, sh- it should help you sort of understand people instead of instead of hating everyone. Yeah, I totally agree. If I could say there's one thing that kind of uh, well, let's say per- uh, got me to want to start podcasting and putting out ideas, it was after I'd finished that book. I'd finished I think it was like last September or something like that, and that's what actually got me to want to start my other podcast, The Moral Trigger, was from reading that book and wanting to really get into ideas and understanding why people think the way they do. Yeah, it's excellent. So um, for my recommendation, I actually want to recommend a book as well, and it's actually a novel, and I don't read novels that often. Um, so it's called The Goldfinch by Donna Tart, and it's a fantastic Pulitzer Prize-winning novel set in contemporary America. And uh, uh, I, I actually received it from, as a birthday present from one of my closest friends, and I, uh, I was blown away because, first of all, I respect his taste. Uh, he's an English professor, and he loves novels. He's read all of them. And... Uh, <laughs> He says this is like one of the best modern contemporary um, novels he's ever read. So I was stoked to read it. Um, it's like 800 pages. I read it in like three days. Um, <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. No, like I really, really liked it. Um, the this, And this is not spoilers here. This, is, this happens in like the introduction of the first chapter. But the story is told by uh, a young man named Theo. And uh, uh, it, it follows his sad, tragic, yet very relatable and common um, life after his mother dies as a young man and it follows him for the next like 15 or so years um, and Donna Tart is a 54 year old woman and how she portrays this young man to me is like mind blowing like to me it was so good she's such a good writer that I'm like I don't know how you I don't think you can learn to be this good like you have something in you like it's really right. really excellent <laughs> um, her portrait of like Theo's Theo's father and his father's girlfriend gave me chills because it's so like a perfect distillation of modern suburban broken families and uh, so it's like it's like super American but at the same time very literary Um, her verbiage is very smart precise yet flowery yeah so I recommend (laughs) The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt if you're a fan of novels if you're not a fan of novels you should read it anyway it's that good all right sounds great we'll make sure to provide that in the show notes as well so that you guys can get links to both of those so that wraps it up for this episode of beyond the lead hope you guys have a good week and uh let's see if we can avoid world war three for another week yeah and you guys can find me by the way at um at patrick fo um on twitter that's my twitter handle feed and also my website is called icriticaltheory.wordpress.com And you can find me tweeting at Mike Skinner and also check out my other podcast, The Moral Trigger.